Psalm 7, please. Psalm 7. This will be week number 15. And uh, by the grace of God, we recorded around 10 hours of material as of late last week. And we continue to work through the book of Psalms, which for the most part, you would have thought would be a devotional. And yet, incredibly, uh, so far, we have shown it to be doctrinal as well. Historical, yes. Prophetical, absolutely. But not just devotional. Uh, but interestingly, doctrinal as well. Psalm 7, Psalm 7, look at verse 1. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me, and deliver me. Let he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. So Psalm 7 concerns the incident with Cush, the Benjamite, found over in 2 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 19, and I may go to the open-air pulpit shortly and do a longer study looking at this particular incident, but it's still on David's mind. And yes, this is an ongoing incident. This is still the Absalom incident. In fact, if you have a King James Bible, Psalm 7 begins with the inscription, Shagion of David, which he sang unto the Lord, concerning the words of Cush the Benjaminite. In fact, if you go to Second uh, Samuel, very briefly, Second Samuel 16, I was reading it last night, Second uh, Samuel 16, and it's also reading Second uh, Samuel 19. In fact, go to Second Samuel 18, uh, like verse 33. Second Samuel 18:33, and the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gates and wept. And as he went, thus he said, "O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son." So he was very close to his son as the father would be to his son, God the son, as, as uh, Abraham would be to Isaac, so David would be to Absalom. Although Absalom was a pitiful son, a poor excuse of a son, David still loved his son, and parents still love their children, even if their children are wicked, deplorable, treacherous. They say a parent's love is an unconditional love, and that's probably very true. Psalm 7, 1 again, O Lord my God, David speaking, in thee do I put my trust. This is a timeless passage, not only dealing with one's eternal security, but practical salvation, daily, de uh, daily deliverance. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, so on and so forth. We are trusting in you, Lord, to deliver us each and every day. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, tearing it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. So the incident is Absalom, as I say, it's the ongoing incident concerning a coup d'etat, and this guy, uh, Cush, a Benjamite, linked to Saul, King Saul, takes it upon himself to attack David verbally, throw insults at David, it wasn't his business to get involved, but he decided to get involved anyway. And as David is escaping with his men of war, seasoned warriors, Cush decides to take it upon himself to kick against the Lord's anointed. So much so that it really terrorizes King David. And of course, David's enemies become the Lord's enemies. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me lest he tear my soul like a lion. Of course, Cush is a type of the Antichrist, and the devil is referred to as a roaring lion. 
is also behind the spirit of Cush that was coming against King David. Like the spirits of Antichrist that was inside of Saul that would come against David. David is a type of Christ. Saul is a type of the Antichrist, of course. Rending it in pieces, tearing it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. So like I say, this is a timeless passage. This is a timeless piece of scripture when it comes to the Lord's people calling on the Lord for help and deliverance. If you are a Christian going through difficult times, perhaps somebody is slandering you, gossiping against you or about you, is wanting to attack you, is wanting to come against you, is making your life a misery, you need to turn to the Lord. Because sometimes, many times, you can't deal with such people yourself. And if you do, you can cause a bigger problem. This is a spiritual incident. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, uh, spirits in high places, principalities and powers, those that are all around us but are invisible to the human eye. And many times if you find yourself really up against it, it could be that it's not just your own flesh which is causing you to be chastised by the Lord, but many times the devil is coming against you. And he's coming against you because you are doing something beneficial for the Lord. This also goes back to the Bathsheba incident, and yes it is possible that David is still lamenting over his bad choices bad decisions when it came not only to Bathsheba but other women if you have many women uh, you have many children uh, thanks to your many women the children become jealous of one another and they start to attack their siblings if you think about Jacob he had many children uh, via was it four women from memory and of course the boys grew up uh, one of their daughters or one of their sister their sister got raped one of the men that she uh, came into contact with he befriended her he raped her and Jacob's sons got upset about it, decided to deal with it themselves. They thought their father was too liberal, too lenient, too wrapped up in his own self, which is perhaps true. And uh, they took it upon themselves to murder the rapist. And they also decided to, to wipe out the entire family. And uh, Jacob said, uh, you brought all this upon me. You've turned my life upside down. I'm slightly paraphrasing. And it says in Genesis, as they left that particular town, the fear of God and all those that would follow Jacob and co and deal with such people because of course from Jacob would come the promised seed the Messiah of course O Lord my God in thee do I put my trust save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me lest he, tear, lest he tear my soul like a lion not his literal soul obviously your soul is invisible to the human eye it's a bodily shaped, a shaped object according to the book of Revelation it can wear clothing and also from Luke 16, it can see, it can feel, it can speak. The rich man in hell was able to still experience pain, literal pain, and yet he was dead, his body was in the grave, his spirit went to be with the father, uh, saved or unsaved, all spirits go back to the father, because the father is the, uh, the originator of life. But his soul was in hell, and his soul was in great pain, suffering, was conscious, his memory hadn't left him, an awful pitch of somebody who dies, lost, and yet their lusts are still there craving for it could be alcohol it could be tobacco it could be drugs it could be anyone or anything it could be sex it could be power it could be money many idols today which are destroying people and that will stay with you for all of eternity but here lest he tear my soul like a lion not his literal soul rending it tearing it in pieces while there is none to deliver many times the word soul appears in scripture to donate to denote excuse me to denote one's inner being to denote one's spirits not their literal soul as i say which is invisible to the human eye we say this he's a happy soul we say this she's a sad soul we say this he is a disturbed soul 
we say this, he's a very uh, incredible soul. Soul, 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 denoting, like I say, the inner being of a person. Psalm 7, verse 3. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy, let the enemy persecute my soul and take it, yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth, and lay mine honour in the dust, Selah, Selah or Selah, meaning Amen, praise the Lord, Alleluia, and here the word soul is used interchangeably with life, so like I say the word soul denotes one's inner person, like the term reigns, he, search, he searches the hearts and the reins, reins like the inner man, the mind of a particular person. But again, verse 3, O Lord my God, repeating himself from verse 1, and again there's a psalm here, there's a beat, there's a theme, there's a tune here. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, or waltz time, 4, 4, or 3, 3, different tempos, different speeds, I think it's 4, 4, uh, for a more upbeat tempo, then it slows down to waltz, what's the waltz, 3, 3? Four 3, 4 time different beats uh, concerning the music at hand, Beethoven, uh, Tchaikovsky, uh, Brahms, uh, Strauss, Wagner, all very classical, that would be probably three, four time for the most part, uh, but jazz music, four, four, uh, that would be a jazz beats, and then you want to slow it right down to the uh, death march, uh, what's the Russian death march they used to, Chopin's, the death march, Dan, dan, da, dan, dan, da, dan, 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 very slow beat, and here David is lamenting because this is the book of the Psalms. This is Israel's uh, theme, if you will, national anthem, if you will, for the church. We can spiritualize a lot of the book of Psalms, which of course we are doing this morning. But like I said a few moments ago, we spent what fifteen weeks going through the book of Psalms, over ten hours of material, and for the most part, this book is doctrinally relevant. To people living today. O oh Lord my God if I have done this. Concerning the Cush incident. Not just the Absalom incident. David was indirectly responsible for Absalom's rising up. His coup d'etat like I say. He was indirectly responsible for being an absent father. And if you want to destroy your sons or your daughters. Just be absent. Just neglect your sons or your daughters. I've heard so many stories over the years since I got saved. Of single mothers especially trying to raise their children. And it's been a battle for them, and it continues to be a battle for them. Fathers are absent, or so they've remarried, and have gone on to have other children, like uh, Luciano Pavarotti, we discussed him some weeks ago, decided to remarry. He was 72, 73, 74, way up in years. Married his secretary, 40 years younger than him. Had children, was it twins? One girl with his uh, very pretty secretary and phone calls are coming from all over the world Pavarotti please play at the Vatican please play at the White House please play at Downing Street uh, please play here please uh, play there he wasn't interested not enough money in the world to separate Pavarotti from his beloved daughter oh Absalom Absalom would to God I died for thee so on and so forth but here David is lamenting you reap what you sow obviously but the main theme is Shagayon of David, which means a meditation or a song. Again, 3-3, three, 3-4, three, three, waltz time, uh, double forte, triple forte. When I was a band leader, I would rehearse the band. And I would say, let's pick up the tempo, let's slow down the tempo. Let's set the mood, let's get into the mood. A piece of music can really frame somebody's mind. If you think of Adagio for strings, Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings... 
that will always bring tears to your eyes. Rain or shine, it makes no difference. You go through some of the wonderful classical tunes, uh, Parsifal from Wagner's uh, masterpiece, uh, or Tannhauser uh, from, again, Wagner's masterpiece, or the great songbooks. Uh, it could be uh, Rogers and Hart, it could be uh, Howard Arlen and Johnny Mercer, it could be Gershwin, it could be Cole Porter. Uh, Lloyd, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber has also written some pretty amazing pieces of music. Music will change people. Music will set the mood. Music will unite people. Uh, many people get into wars, altercations, but music brings sides together. I think it was two or three years ago, an orchestra went to North Korea and performed in North Korea, and it brought people together. It can do that. But of course, music is also linked back to the devil, the anointed cherub. Uh, so you've got to be careful when it comes to music. But here, David is lamenting over the Cush incident, Cush the Benjaminite. And of course, Benjamin uh, would be the tribe that Saul would come from, King Saul. And also, Benjamin is a tribe where Paul would come from. But again, O Lord my God, if I have done this concerning the uh, Cush incident, if there be iniquity in my hands concerning the Cush incident, and indirectly concerning the Absalom incident, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul, not his literal soul, like I say, his body, his uh, inner being, and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honour in the dust. Seal alike, let him kill me. Let him put me to death. So it's like this. If you think of somebody who's going about their own business, it could be a British chap called Gary Newlove, who was from... Uh, a town not far from here, uh, it'll come to me shortly, Warrington, Warrington, and he got fed up with his car being vandalised, and he put some cameras up outside of his property in uh, Warrington, like I say, not far from here, and after monitoring his CCTV, he saw a group of youths, night after night, uh, vandalising his car, causing him a lot of problem, a lot of grief and uh, problems, he went out one night, rather foolishly I suppose, challenged, uh, this group of thugs, yobs, and they decided to kick him to death. They stabbed him as well. And uh, the video was released to the media maybe 10, 11, 12 years ago. And those uh, criminals were arrested, rounded up, went to prison maybe 10, 15 years. Very lenient sentences. His wife was made a baroness by, I think it was Gordon Brown or David Cameron, to be a sar, to be an advisor uh, when, it came, when it came to... The victims of uh, of crimes, and yet even uh, Mrs. Uh, or Baroness Newlove, even she was lenient. Didn't call for life without parole. Didn't call for the death penalty. Going back to what we discussed a few weeks ago, that British police officer who was murdered by a group of uh, gypsies, travellers as they are now called, must be politically correct, mustn't we? And he was dragged by his feet by the uh, criminal's car, and he died on the scene. And uh, his wife is now setting a campaign up, trying to get people to support her campaign that if a police officer is murdered mm. on duty, they should get at least 20 years in prison. Why not make it life without parole? Is that all your husband is worth to you, just 20 years? I say life without parole or death. I give you the option of, of uh, the needle or being in a cell for the rest of your life. There's a guy in Wakefield outside of Leeds. He's been there since, or he's been in a prison since the 19... 19... 80s, I forget his name, he murdered many men, he was a 
sodomites. He did some awful things to his victims. And he is held at a Class A prison in Wakefield, which is near Leeds. He's been there for around 40 years. He's in a cage. If you think back to that movie, uh, Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter, which came out in the 1990s. Silence of the Lambs, thank you. A uh, very powerful movie, which I think was based on a true story of a cannibal. Yeah. And that particular cell uh, where Anthony Hopkins is playing the part of Hannibal Lecter, he's detained, uh, that was based on this guy in Leeds, whose name escapes me. He's been there for 40 years. Now, I think in the UK, to hold a prisoner, it costs about £400 a day. £400 a day. Is that good money? Is that value for money? I don't think it is. Really, he should have been executed when he was first uh, found guilty over 40 years ago. But it's now inhumane to execute criminals, but it's humane to execute the unborn. But here, David is saying, if I'm guilty of uh, causing a fight, picking a fight with Cush, the Benjaminites, like I say, I should be destroyed. I should die the death. I shouldn't be allowed to live. If you think of a stalker, for example, somebody who decides to follow someone, to wage a war against someone. It was Steven Steven Spielberg, maybe a decade ago or so, who brought a uh, charge against a man who was uh, following him, stalking him all over California. And uh, this went on for year after year after year after year. Here's Steven Spielberg, one of the most successful Hollywood directors of all time, worth probably three or four hundred million dollars, if not more. And he can't stop this guy stalking him. Went through the courts and eventually they found this guy, sentenced him, He's now doing time in prison. Well, that's an interesting example, and that's one good example of someone who was innocent like Spielberg being picked on by this uh, homosexual man who was obsessed with Steven Spielberg. Or how about the Manchester Sodomite who raped many men over many years in Manchester. He was born in Indonesia, and he went to prison last year. He got 30 years uh, for raping or drugging and raping innocent men and uh, having his way with them. And one day as he was raping this man after coming back from a nightclub, he woke up to find himself being assaulted. Three innocent groups of people, innocent as far as can be expected, of course. But the point is, they were all going about their own business and three different groups of people decided to attack innocent parties. New Love was attacked, wasn't looking for trouble. Spielberg was indirectly attacked, wasn't looking for trouble. And the victims of this Indonesian man who was living in Manchester studying for a doctorate were all uh, picked on had wars or had uh, uh, their lives ripped apart by this man who was picking a fight with them. And David's saying basically this, that, Lord, if I'm guilty of causing this incident, if I'm guilty of going against people who were at peace with me, I deserve to be put to death. But go back to verse 1 again. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Absalom and his men curse the Benjamites and in type... Uh, people who come against Christians, uh, the history of the church. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. He may torture me, he may persecute me, he may put me before a church a church council. I may have the Jesuits coming after me, or the Dominicans coming after me. Or I may, be, uh, I may fall victim of the uh, Puritans. I may fall victim to uh, those that were running Geneva, back in the days of John Calvin. Or I may be living in a post a Christian country like the UK and I'm being attacked day and night I'm being slandered I'm being sued in the courts my life is miserable my neighbors are against me and here David is calling on the Lord to step in to deal with him to deal uh, with his uh, with his uh, with his uh, advocates or to deal with his enemies and to become an advocate for him and I'll discuss that more in a few more moments oh Lord my God 
if I have done this, this, this is a particular incident that David has in mind, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy, let the enemy persecute my soul, and take it, yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth, I lay mine honour in the dust, sealer. So Spielberg, had he wanted to, could have given this uh, stalker a taste of his own medicine. New Love's uh, murderers should have been given a taste of their own medicine. And the survivors of the Indonesian living in Manchester, studying at one of the main universities uh, in Manchester for many a year, should have given him a taste of his own medicine. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies. And awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. Lord, step up to the mark. Please don't remain silent forever. Don't appear to be indifferent. And sometimes we pray. And we pray and we pray. And many times we don't get an answer. We pray for family to be saved. We pray for a job. Or we pray for marriage. Or we pray for children to be conceived. Many uh, good godly couples are trying to have children. And have been praying for year after year after year. Can't have children. It could be the wife. It could be the husband. It could be both. Who knows? Or you're praying for this. You're praying for that. It doesn't come through. You're being persecuted. You're being slandered. You're being gossiped about. You're being held down. You're being beaten. You're being whipped like the Apostle Paul. Or uh, John the Baptist who was interrogated by King Herod. And did a great time uh, mocking him. Examining him. Herod's uh, wife. His brother's wife of course. And uh, Herod's wife's daughter had a great time uh, coming against John the Baptist mocking him and he had to live with that many times throughout church history uh, Christian people have, have, have had to really suffer at the hands of those that are above them and what can you do if you were a first century Christian you had no money you had no status you had no authority you would call on the Lord to step up and uh, fight your battles for you arise O Lord in thine anger this is also a throwback to the book of Numbers where Moses and the children of Israel were calling the Lord to step in and deal with their enemies. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, Absalom and Cush. But again, in a picture of the church in general, a type of the church in general, those that would come against the gospel, those that would decide to try and thwart what we are doing. It could be street work. Maybe four or five years ago we were in Hastings, uh, a very difficult town to work, a very dark town to work the town of uh, Alistair Crowley, and uh, we got our boards up, and uh, we met a lot of weird people during our time in Hastings, and I got into an altercation with a shopkeeper, and I uh, got the board out, board up outside of his shop, not on his own property, and he came out, told me to move my board, and I said no, and uh, we got into an altercation, and it almost came to blows, and I think Patrick stepped in, yep. de-escalated it, yep. and uh, it was able to be resolved. That kind of a thing, Whilst we were in Hastings, a musician was playing guitar for memory, and he gave me his business card. He was a witch, and again, a lot of issues with him, and we had to deal with him, and we had to uh, walk away from him a few moments, uh, for a few times, uh, for a few moments. Didn't take long for my old nature to kick off, and I had nearly two physical fights on the streets of Hastings four or five years ago. I'm not violent by nature. I am one of the peacemakers. I tried to break up an incident. I tried to bring bring peace to an incident. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. But every so often, if I get into an altercation on the streets, like in Hastings, it brings out the worst of me. Maybe a year or so afterwards, we were in Cambridge, and we had this guy who kept coming over to us every day, the town atheist. 
blaspheming, filthy mouth. He thought he was a clever guy. Stalker, yeah. yeah, stalking us, really. Yeah. And we had to pick our words carefully with him. And again, had we, had we not been saved, or had I not been saved, I would have given him a real thrashing, quite honestly. Yeah. I mean, I would have held him down, just beaten the life out of him. But of course, you can't do that. You're a Christian, you must turn the other cheek. And yet, ever so often, my old nature gets the better of me, and I had to watch what I said to this guy. It's that sort of a thing. And those sorts of people, uh, when they come against you, like they did in Cambridge and uh, Hastings, you've got to ask the Lord to step up and uh, deal with the rage of your enemies. Awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. Well, everyone will hit the judgment one day. If you are saved, the judgment seats. If you're lost, the great white throne judgment. And uh, as we like to say, when you are dead, you are dead a long time. So make sure you are born again. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. Go back to Psalm 1. Now we know that David has written the first seven Psalms. As Psalm 1, look at verse 5 again. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, like they won't be exonerated, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Go back to Psalm 7. Look at 7 again. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. Congregation, we say church today, we say the assembly. So for the Old Testament, the term congregation is a good picture of the church for today. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about, surround thee. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. We say even so, come, Lord Jesus. Go to First uh, Peter. I'm reading Peter at the moment. I was reading it this morning. First Peter. And uh, spend a couple of minutes just showing you some of the terms that we read and have been reading from uh, Psalms to further elaborate the meaning of the words that we uh, read. First uh, Peter 4, First uh, Peter 4, look at verse 17. For the time will come that judgment must begin at the house of God. That's for us, of course. And if it first begin at us, what's the envy of them that obey not the gospel of God? Refuse to bend the knee, refuse to call on the name of the Lord, refuse to appropriate the atonement. And if the righteous, the righteous, scarcely be saved, we are righteous, we are declared righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Where shall the ungodly, unregenerate, and the sinner, somebody who is lost in sin, living in sin 24-7, appear? Wherefore let them suffer according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Go back to Psalm 7. So the righteous, the redeemed, the godly, the just are saved. The ungodly, the unrighteous, the unholy are lost, of course. Psalm 7, 8. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to mine integrity, integrity that is in me. Again, this is concerning a specific incident. If David was to say this concerning his whole life from beginning to end... It would be a horror story. What could he say to the Lord? Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. I've had 20 plus women. I've got 35 children. I've killed people at one point in my life. I was working with the Philistines. I lied when I was challenged about the Bathsheba incident. I wasn't a good father. I mean, he couldn't say that. But he could concern the Cush uh, incident. The Lord should judge the people. Not just Israel, but mankind, of course. The Lord should judge the people. Judge me, O Lord. According to my righteousness, righteousness, and according to mine integrity that is in me. This is a specific sin concerning a specific incident. For example, 
if I was walking down the street and a police car pulled up and said, are you James Battelle? And I said, yes, I am. And they said to me, we have an arrest warrant for you. You're wanted for perhaps murder, perhaps uh, abduction or uh, rape or what have you. And I was put before a local magistrate, but first taken to the police station, fingerprinted, had my DNA swabbed and they're put into the system and interrogated for many, many hours. I think in this country they can hold you for 72 hours before they charge you. I would say to the, those, uh, those interviewing me, well, I'm innocent of these particular crimes, but I'm not innocent of all crimes or all sins, but this particular incident I am innocent of. So I say that because if you have a reference Bible, maybe Ruckman's reference Bible or uh, David Hoffman, but especially Peter Ruckman, they believe that in the Old Testament... People were saved by their faith and their works. And for the tribulation, again, people are saved by their faith and their works. That somehow, mankind has a level of righteousness to offer the Lord, which of course they do not. And I like to quote that from uh, that passage from John, how the Lord came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But of course, go back to the Old Testament, it says how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, he lived long before Moses did. Yes, Moses gave you the law. But before he gave it to you in written form, you had it written in your heart, back in the book of Genesis. It's always been grace. God has always saved man via grace. And I say that because we have to keep saying that. We have to really drive this point home. We have nothing to offer the Lord under any circumstances. Like I said last Sunday, what can you give someone who has everything? Nothing, of course. What Paul does to, uh, say to you is to give your bodies to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. But you can't give them your uh, good works, as it were. You can sacrifice animals day and night. They may uh, uh, cover your sins, but they won't take away your sins. And that's why all of the Old Testament greats, when they died, went to Abraham's bosom, where they waited and waited for the, the Lord Jesus Christ to come, the Lamb of God, who would take away their sins. And only then could they go to heaven when he went to heaven. Up until then, nobody went to heaven, because heaven wasn't yet open. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, not without exception, but without distinction, concerning the Cush incident, like I say, the Absalom incident. And according to mine integrity, that is in me. Keep your hand there, and go to Isaiah uh, chapter 3. Standing in states are never the same. Uh, David, at his best, was still altogether vanity. Only one man walked this earth who didn't sin a day in his life. Everyone else uh, sins, and what Paul say, we all come short of the glory of God. Unfortunately, some of our dispensational brethren, like Rutman and Hoffman and Breaker and some of the other big YouTube names, make the blunder that Old Testament saints had something to offer the Lord and the New Testament saints have something to offer the Lord. They don't, of course. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah 3, Isaiah 3, look at verse 13. The Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. I love that piece of scripture. The Lord standeth up to plead, like a barrister, like a lawyer, and standeth to judge the people. One more, go to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. If you find yourself in a courtroom being prosecuted uh, for something which you did do, don't be so pious, uh, you want to find yourself a lawyer, a barrister, to represent you. It's the state's job to prove you guilty. It's not their job to find you. It's not your job to prove yourself innocent. It's their job to find you guilty. The burden of proof is on them, not on you. But of course, God has already proven us to be guilty. We're under the wrath of God. His wrath abides upon us. 
Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, look at verse uh, 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The earth is circular, not flat. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, insignificant, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spread them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Same sort of a thing. He'll turn everything upside down. And yes, if you go into a courtroom, and I've been to, I've been to a couple over, over the years uh, to uh, witness, not to be prosecuted. And I've been into uh, a couple of courtrooms in my life, and I've seen judges uh, pass judgment. And I've read many accounts of courtrooms, and I've seen many stuff, on, many programs online about uh, court cases, so on and so forth. All those judges are pictures of the judge. But of course, even the bad judges are going to be judged and pulled down. I go back to Psalm, uh, Psalm 7. The Lord to judge the people, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to mine integrity, integrity that is in me. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. If there wasn't a judge of all judges, and there wasn't a God of all gods, if there wasn't a Lord of all lords, it would be pretty uh, pitiful uh, down here. If you think about those people who went through the Cambodia massacre, and was it Pol Pot? Yeah. Uh, that was horrific. Millions died. History has, for the most part, ignored it because it was done in the name of communism, Darwinism. And yet, World War Two, where six, seven, maybe eight million Jews died, or add up all the others that died, 20 million. More people died in Cambodia than they did during World War Two. And yet, because the media, for the most part, hate uh, uh, the Nazis, uh, which were, for the most part, Catholic, they wanted you to know about World War Two, the Holocaust, which was horrific. Uh, deplorable but because the media for the most part are communist darwinist atheist they overlooked the transgressions that came out of cambodia what 40 years ago world war ii was 70 years ago 75 years ago 80 years ago more people died in cambodia at the hands of darwinism than during world war ii under the hands of the nazis which like i say for the most part were roman catholic did a deal with the vatican or two a concordat back in the 1930s with uh Pope Pius Twelfth and uh, others, that's gone down in history as being notorious, and rightly so, and it's taught in schools, and rightly so, but you're not told about Cambodia, or the Russian gulags, or China today, because again, in this country, the government, the people, or the, not so much the people, but the government, the uh, teaching authorities in this country, the media especially, are left-wing Darwinists, and they want you to know all about the Nazis, going after the Jews, but not the communists going after poor people in Cambodia. And uh, that needs to be said. But one day, those people are going to die, hit the judgments. I think it was four or five days ago, one of the most infamous people from Cambodia yeah. died. Camarouge. What was the name again? Camarouge. Camarouge, that's it. And he was unrepentant right up until the end. And yet another guy who was tied in with that awful incident got born again yeah. about 12 or 13 years ago. First John 2. Look at verse 1. My little children, are these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. No need to sin. It wasn't necessary for David to sin. It's not necessary for me to sin or for you to sin. The word of God says if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate like a lawyer, like a barrister, a legal expert. We need him to represent us. If I was to be prosecuted in a British courtroom under any circumstances, I wouldn't spend five minutes defending myself. 
I know some people think you should. I know Paul uh, defended himself and others did. But of course, Paul was an expert in the law. Paul was uh, professionally trained. He knew the law inside out. He was uh, more than equipped to take on his accusers. Jesus Christ was also questioned on the spot by Herod and Pilate, put before a kangaroo court at three o'clock in the morning. But of course, he was a rabbi of rabbis. He knew the Jewish law inside out. He knew, he knew the Roman law inside out. If you're not trained to deal with a courtroom, the professionals will just wipe the floor with you. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, meaning to conciliate, meaning to render an incident favourable. So it's like this very briefly. If you find yourself being fined, maybe you didn't pay a bill on time. Or maybe you didn't want to pay a bill on time. Go back to Psalm 7. And you wanted to avoid uh, what you were supposed to do. And the powers that be came after you. Maybe you didn't declare your tax returns like you should have done. Or maybe you didn't pay your bill on time. Or maybe you didn't want to pay your television license or whatever it may be. And uh, you find yourself being prosecuted. Which in the UK you would be prosecuted for that. And then somebody steps forward and says I'll cover his or her bill fine on their behalf. They don't care who pays the fine as long as it's paid. That, of course, is what Jesus Christ did for us. 7-8 again. The Lord, so judge the people, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Romans 2 says that they have the law written on their hearts. They are without excuse. They suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. You'd be surprised how many people know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. But over many years, they have buried the truth. They have become indifferent to the truth. They have burnt out their consciences. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Concerning a specific incident, like I say, not uh, his own righteousness, period. That would be a disaster for him. And according to mine integrity, concerning his kingship, concerning his leadership, being a good godly king, which for the most part he was, that is in me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reins. He tries the hearts and the reins, meaning the inner man or the mind of the inner man. For here let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. It could be North Korea. It could be Belarus. It could be Iran. It could be tribal gangs. It could be sectarianism. It could be racial bigotry or religious bias. It's all over the place. In the UK, the BBC are bending over backwards to offer diversity lessons and classes to their elite. They are desperate to reach out to the minority of minority groups. But they wouldn't spend five minutes reaching out to Christians. Bible-believing Christians. The police force is now called the police service, not the police force, it's now the police service. The armed forces put a video out, uh, a promotional video about a year or so ago, of an Islamic soldier praying, mm. in the middle of a war zone. Got the prayer mat out, and he's praying, and his colleagues are looking on somewhat bemused. That's the way they want it to be now. We have to appease this group, that group. We have to bend over backwards to appease wickedness, and such wickedness will come to an end. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. And one day it will do. But establish the just. Christ the just for the unjust. They may bring us to God. For the righteous God trieth, tests the hearts and reins. Keep your hand there. And go to Second Timothy. Second Timothy. Sometimes it's tiring to do right. Sometimes it feels tedious to do right. You see people all around you doing well. Getting promoted. Making a lot of money. Life is very good. And you think to yourself, what's the point? Why should I keep pushing on? Why should I say no to my inner man when I see people saying yes to theirs? And they say yes to theirs and they get on very well in life. They do very well in life. Uh, but of course their life will eventually come to an end. 
2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. In fact, I slightly jumped ahead of myself. Go back to Psalm 7 and then keep your hand in Second uh, Timothy 2. Uh, yeah, Psalm 17. My defense is of God. Yes, when it comes to the judgment, the advocate, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. My defense is of God. My righteousness is of God. I'm going to uh, glory in the glory of glories. My glory is God's covering, imputation. My uh, advocate is Jesus Christ. He steps forward and says, uh, James Patel belongs to me. You can't touch him. Yes, he may be guilty of this and that. He's broken the Ten Commandments 24-7. And of course, if you break one of the Ten Commandments, you've broken all of the Ten Commandments. He should go to hell forever with that guy from Cambodia, uh, with some of those wicked people that have done wicked things, like uh, the murderers of uh, Gary Newlove or the stalker, Spielberg stalker, or the Manchester sodomite who raped many, many men. He should go to hell with those people forever. Uh, but thankfully, somebody did something for me. Somebody stepped up, covered my fine. And if I was to appropriate the atonement, which I did 18 years ago, I'm good to go. I'm good to go. I've been exonerated. Again, the state's job is to prove me guilty, not for me to prove myself innocent. The burden is on the state, not on me. God has already judged me and found me to be guilty. I can't prove myself to be innocent because I'm not innocent. I'm not, in I'm not innocent. You are not innocent. None of us are innocent. We are all guilty. We are all banged to rights. But my defence is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Now go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy uh, 1. 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. And uh, look at verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, like David, but not quite. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Well, David was ashamed. Uh, Psalm 51. And last week we looked at First uh, John chapter 2. That you shouldn't be ashamed at the judgment seats. Although many will be. If they don't repent of their sins. After being saved of course. For I know whom I have believed. Not what I have believed. But whom I have believed. And am persuaded. That he. Not it. Is able to keep that. Like my faith. Which I have committed unto him. Against that day. So David is rejoicing in the Lord's work. Go back to Psalm 7. David is also rejoicing in the work of the Lord. David's defence is God. And when the judgment comes around, you'll be so glad you've got an advocate. Somebody who has put on a retainer for you. Somebody far better than uh, Perry Mason or George Carmen. And like I said a few moments ago, I wouldn't spend five minutes defending myself in a courtroom. Only once I went to court to sue somebody many years ago. A small claims court where you have to represent yourself. And I got up maybe 19, 20 years of age, taking on this company that had ruined one of my cars. And I got up, had my say, and had people present as witnesses. Patrick was there, a friend was there, and some others were there, I think, as well, witnessing uh, the entire court incident. And this guy got up, a lawyer, for the firm that I was suing, and I found myself taking on this lawyer in the presence of a judge. I thought, what am I doing here? 19, 20 and the judge said to me, uh, sit down, she said, Mr. Patel, uh, you, haven't, you haven't prepared your paperwork adequately. And the lawyer was told to sit down for his company. And she said to me and him, I suggest you both go into a side room and try and resolve this incident, this ongoing incident, this case, I should say, uh, because you basically wasted my time. His paperwork was inadequate. My paperwork was inadequate. I wasn't a lawyer. That wasn't my forte. But I was taking, taking on a lawyer in a courtroom and I was able to settle out of courts with the person in question. But imagine going to the judgment seat of Christ. And just taking your chances. Or arriving at the judgment seat of Christ. 
as a saved person and never once confessing your sins to him. Or imagine going to the great white throne judgments and facing Jesus Christ as a lost sinner. And he looks at you, his eyes go straight through you, you're naked in outer space and everything you did wrong since the day of the day of your coming of age is brought to remembrance. Everything that you ever did, sins of omission, sins of commission, you'd be just mortified, wouldn't you? I mean, what we can see today, what we know today to be so, is pretty incredible. We can, we can Google someone or something, all the facts come up straight away. There's no excuse to be ignorant. And what we can find today is a picture of the Great White Throne Judgment. You can study Cambodia. You can do a, dis- a dissertation on Cambodia. You can really get into the mindsets of Pol Pot, who was Jesuit trained from memory. And you can really get uh, some good stuff out of that era, that era, and I would suggest you do so if you are a student of, of, of uh, a student of history. Study that period. You won't find much about it in schools or universities because, again, Darwinist, atheist, following Karl Marx, following Charles Darwin, following that school of atheism, and of course the media will cover up for him. But the Nazis, World War Two, for the most part Catholic, murdering Jews. It's always taught. Anne Frank, we know all about her but other victims of, of atrocities that came through the uh, camps we know nothing about. Patrick knows a gentleman from Vietnam who uh, spent eight years in a Vietnamese prison uh, when the Viet Cong decided to overthrow the governments of the day, a Catholic government, from memory, and the Viet Cong came in, hardline atheist group of Marxists backed by China and Russia, and this chap that Patrick knows spent eight years in a Vietnamese prison, eating rats, eating uh, wild animals, surviving on uh, water, rice. I mean, horrific conditions. Was tortured, escaped Vietnam, came to the UK. He can't go back home. The secret police are still keen and, w- and would be keen to question him. Yep. Would be keen to uh, find out uh, what he's been doing in the UK. His wife went back to Vietnam. She's been there for, I think, three or four years. His daughter went back early this year. And uh, was able to spend a few weeks visiting family. She's come back to the UK with her husband. But this guy that we know, especially Patrick, spent eight years in a Vietnamese prison. Tortured physically, spiritually and emotionally at the hands of a communist atheist government. Not talked about for the most part. Why? Because, again, Darwinist, atheist and uh, people in this country, the powers that be in this country, love the idea of such people... Uh, having authority and power, whereas if you offer yourself as a Christian or offer yourself as a uh, religious person on the rights, even if you are deceived and deluded and you do something wicked, uh, deplorable, they will come after you and uh, really uh, expose you for being what you are. One last time and I'll close. My defence is of God. My defence is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Going back to Psalm 1 again. Uh... For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And also from uh, Psalm 2.12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. A timeless passage, but again the context is David, running from Cush, the Benjaminites, and dealing with the uh, madness of Absalom. David was in denial, didn't deal with his wayward son and uh, that's one of the reasons why he's he's suffering so much but also he's worrying about this Cush character found over in 2 Samuel 16 and 19 like I say I may do a video on that it's a long subject to look at uh, during a Sunday service but as Paul says we reap what we sow 
We really do. And all this could have been avoided had David kept his head down, governed properly, godly, didn't get involved with Bathsheba, and uh, kept his sons uh, in place, and also looked after his daughter, who was also raped by her half-brother, going back to one of Jacob's daughters. And like I said a few moments ago, Jacob's sons overreacted, and uh, David's son, uh, Absalom, would also overreact uh, when it came to the rape of his sister. And David should have dealt with that, and Jacob should have dealt with the rape of his daughter, and David should have done the same with his daughter. So, the book of Psalms, uh, for the most part, at least on the surface anyway, would appear to be a wonderful place to go for a devotional time, a devotional study, to find help and assistance during times of absolute despair. In fact, just last night, I got a comment left on one of my videos, I think it was First Corinthians actually, saying that this person had just lost their son, and were wanting uh, something to numb the pain, to deal with some of the grief. Difficult question, very difficult question. How do you console somebody over the loss of their child? You may expect to bury your parents, but a parent or parents don't expect to bury one of their children. So I'll get back to that party uh, later today. But the book of Psalms is a place to go to when it comes to help, assistance, uh, healing from the scars which never seem to heal. But also we have to remind ourselves that a good chunk of the book of Psalms deals with figures of speech. Uh, like, for example, we will say, uh, He blows with the wind. Found over in Psalm 1-4, like the ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft, or the shaft which the wind driveth away. It blows to the left, it blows to the right, and we criticise politicians many times for blowing with the wind. We say he has no morals, she has no principles, she wants to keep her top job, he wants to keep his top job, and therefore, he or she blows with the wind. It's a figure of speech, of course. Or from Psalm 4, uh, make that Psalm 3, uh, 7. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheap bone, thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. And we say this, we say it was like a kick in the teeth. Not a literal kick in the teeth, but it was like a kick in the teeth. It was like a slap across the face. Or from Psalm 4, 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. We will say this, we say uh, he slept like a baby, or she slept like a baby, and we are, of course, denoting a good night's sleep. Well, Psalm 5, uh, Psalm 5, 1 begins with the following uh, description. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Keep your hand there and go to Luke uh, chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We say bite the dust, we say hit the dust, uh, we say get your house in order. We say sort your stuff out. Uh, we speak about the straight and the narrow. These are all Bible words. But of course they are figures of speech. If I was to say to you, get your house in order. What am I saying? Sort your foundation out? Sort the painting out? Sort the uh, ceiling out? No, I'm saying get your paperwork ready. You're about to die. Again, figures of speech. It was a kick in the teeth. Or I didn't see it coming. I was blindsided. Uh, denoting something took place or something crept up on you unawares. Luke 9, Luke 9, uh, look at verse 44. Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. So Psalm 5.1, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation, is picked up from Luke 9. Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Not literally, let the words 
drop down into your ears per se, but listen to what I'm saying to you. Again, figures of speech. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. So, just want to spend a few minutes uh, making it clear that when it comes to terms in the Word of God, many times you are dealing with figures of speech, like cut your hands off or cut your feet off. Of course, Paul doesn't tell you to do so, and even, even if you were to cut your hands off or cut your feet off, it wouldn't deal with the lust problem. I think it was uh, Oscar Wilde who uh, was castrated, got into a situation, he was uh, given hard labour, he was a promiscuous, notorious promiscuous sodomite, and I'm pretty sure it was Oscar Wilde, or one of his contemporaries, who found himself being castrated, and somebody wrote about him, saying that it destroyed him, because he couldn't lust anymore. And he couldn't enjoy his lust. I won't go into further detail. But the, bo- the bottom line is this. That terms like lusting or cut your, uh, cut your hands off or cut your feet off or pluck your eye out. Another one is never to be taken literally of course. Well last Sunday we looked at the first uh, few verses from Psalm 7. And Lord God we pray for your blessing this morning as we continue to work through the book of Psalms. We ask you to open up this wonderful part of the Old Testament read by people for thousands of years it could be during war famine or other times of absolute dire straits it could be while you have a sick relative or a dying child or you're going through poverty or a divorce or you're trying to conceive or you are lonely or you are unemployed or you are homeless who knows what the background here would be but the word of god the book of psalms is a place to go to and we ask you to open the book of psalms the seventh psalm please lord today In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So, Psalm 7, like I say, we looked at the first 10 verses uh, over the last, over last Sunday, from last Sunday, and uh, up until last Sunday, we have recorded over 11 hours of material working through the greatest and most famous book in the Bible. And every time I read the Bible, I'm currently reading through Deuteronomy and the book of Acts, it is plainly obvious to me that only one person wrote the Bible. And of course that one person is the Holy Ghost. Psalm 7, Psalm 7, look at 11. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So the last parts of verse uh, 11, how God is angry with the wicked every day, you will see many times on boards, uh, street boards or placards, and we've had many street boards over the years, many placards over the years, and we put that verse on our board, and we've still got the board somewhere, and we've got a lot of stick over it. People walk over to us and say, that's a very negative message. Uh, You are spreading hate or you are putting fear into people. But it's like this. If you have a laptop or an iPad or an iPhone or a tablet or a Kindle, but especially a laptop, you've got an antivirus program working in the background. I'm sure you have. And you say, that's very negative, James. You don't need it. Well, of course you need it. People are hacking phones, mobiles, tablets, Kindles 24-7. If you work for a bank or a well-known institution, or if you, have a, if you have a business which works from home, you're very conscious and you're very cautious about who you allow to gain access to your servers. You have an antivirus uh, working in the background, a firewall to keep intruders out. So nobody criticizes those that create such programs, those that write such programs, those that sell such programs. They would expect such people to exist to protect those who go online 24-7. So if those people aren't criticised, why are we criticised? Or somebody who sells life insurance, or house insurance, or car insurance. Different levels of car insurance, you can get fully comprehensive, or third party fire and theft. Nobody criticises those people for selling 
insurance and yet when Christians go into the streets like we do and get our board up and we use a verse like uh, Psalm 711 we are criticized we are told we are hateful we are told we are spreading fear but isn't it true that people can experience a flood or a hurricane or a volcano erupting many people have lost loved ones over the years if you think back to the 1970s a famous pianist by the name of Bill Miller not necessarily known uh, in household circles but he was Frank Sinatra's pianist a very famous pianist he lived in California and uh, a nice part of California a very upmarket part of California and he woke up to see a mudslide taking place in his part of California and it took hold so quickly that he managed to escape but his wife didn't his wife died in this mudslide and I'm pretty sure afterwards had you sat down with Bill Miller and said to him why did you want house insurance or life insurance? Just trust the gods, as they say, or just trust uh, good old Mother Nature. He would have looked you in the face and been very grieved that you would be so insensitive. God judgeth the righteous, that's you and I. The righteous, the redeemed, the saved, the just. That first part is very rarely ever thought about or exegeted. But of course we are the righteous and God will judge us if we belong to him. He will chastise us, he will chasten us. And if you are a Christian and have never been chastised or chastened, never been put on your sick bed, the chances are you don't belong to the Lord. God, not the devil. God, not society. God, not the government. God, not the Pope. God judgeth the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. The wicked like the unregenerate. Keep your hand there and go to Ezekiel. 21 Ezekiel 21 if you think about Luke 16 the rich man and the beggar and uh, for a period of time they both came together they were both aware of one another and uh, the rich man was lost and the beggar was saved and that caused a lot of uh, issues for certain people how can that be so a lot of these prosperity preachers will say that if you are poor you are cursed and if you are rich you are blessed and of course, just to be rich doesn't mean you are blessed, or, mean, or just to be poor means you are blessed. Or to be rich means you're cursed, or poor means you are to be blessed. It can go both ways, of course. Many poor people are in hell. Uh, many rich people are in heaven. Many rich people are in hell. Many poor people are in heaven. But the point is, the rich man was lost, and the poor man was saved. And back in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, for a rabbi to say that, it was shocking. Because again, poor people were looked upon as being a scourge of society. Parasites, perhaps. Uh, taking, never giving, whereas the rich provided all, all of the wealth, provided the uh, country to run, and the thoughts of a poor man being saved, and a rich man being in hell, was just abhorrent for first century Judaism. And the same is true today. If you go to a prosperity church, if you go to a big church, these, these mega churches, maybe 15, 20,000 strong, you've got predominantly middle class people in such churches who earn good money, have done very well in life, and they look at themselves as being blessed by the Lord. And if somebody homeless was to go into such a place, or somebody who drives an old car or has no car, or cripple, or somebody who couldn't speak or hear, somebody who was uh, dumb, somebody who was mute, was to go into such a place and sit uh, with a well-to-do couple, the well-to-do couple would feel very uncomfortable. And that's what James condemns in his epistle. But Ezekiel 21 picks up on Psalm 7:11 how God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day and Ezekiel 21 Ezekiel 21 look at verse 1 and the word of the Lord came unto me saying son of man 
set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous, the righteous, the righteous, and the wicked. Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword, my sword, out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. So if you think back over the last two or three thousand years, it could be during the time of Henry VIII, or it could be during the time of the US Civil War, or if you think back to China, around the time of the Revolution, or in Russia, again the time of the Revolution, or maybe in Japan after World War II, or during World War II, leading up to the end of World War II, when the Emperor was finally humiliated. I think it was MacArthur who told his, his uh, aides that when you see the Emperor, you face him face to face, you don't turn your back on him anymore. Up until 1945, if you were to see the Emperor, you were to turn your back. You weren't to make any eye contact with the Japanese Emperor. He thought he was deity, like the Dalai Lama thinks he is deity. And after World War II, the Emperor, who should have been hung, incidentally, was spared because uh, Douglas MacArthur wanted to keep him on side. He was a token of reconciliation, I suppose. And it was a shock when uh, MacArthur first met with the Emperor. And uh, the Emperor's aide said to MacArthur, you can't face him face to face. You must look away. No eye, no eye can look at him. He is deity. And he said to the Emperor's aides, from this day forth, that all ends. It's finished, dead and buried. But many people suffered in Japan, and I'm sure there were many Christians, or maybe not many, but there were probably some Christians during World War II who perished in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And I'm sure there were some, not many, but some Christians in Germany who perished when the Soviets arrived. I think it was uh, uh, Chancellor Cole's wife, whose name escapes me, uh, she lived during World War Two. She wasn't saved, but she suffered during World War Two, and she was raped by Russian soldiers. And 40 years later, when her husband was the Chancellor of Germany, even up until the last moments of her life, she hated the Russians. She hated the Russian language. And if Russians were in the room, uh, she would leave discreetly. She couldn't be around any Russian people. She was scarred. Going back to being raped, along with her mother, I think, during World War Two. But I'm sure there were Christians in Germany uh, during World War II when bombs were dropping from British and American jets or when the Russians arrived, 1944, 1945. It's been said that by the end of 1945 or early 1946, two million abortions took place due to Russian uh, peasants raping women. But the point is there were saved people, no doubt in Germany, perhaps saved women that were raped by Russians, perhaps, or if you think about Europe, when troops are going through uh, Europe from France, it's possible that British, American and Canadian soldiers were also raping women. Patrick knew an old man who died about 25 years ago who was in World War II. And he'd been, he'd been in the Salvation Army all of his life. And towards the end of his life he became a Roman Catholic. And as he was dying he was tortured. He was really uh, in pain. He was churned up inside. And he kept saying to Patrick, the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. World War Two, we did terrible things. I thought, yes, I can just imagine what those British squaddies did, World War Two, yeah. with their American counterparts, Canadian. You've got these women all over the place. You've been at war for four years. You haven't seen your wife for four, five years. And you've got these women that have been uh, under 
occupation. And of course, you are a man, and every man is uh, basically no good. It says over in John's Gospel how Christ knew what was in man, and didn't need man to testify of him. And you've got these squaddies going through Europe, like I say, women all over the place. It's a temptation, and many British, American, and Canadian soldiers took them wives, left, right, and centre. Fast forward to their dying days, they are in great agony. I remember watching a documentary three or four years ago about the Stone Gang that were terrorising parts of Israel, 1947, 1948, and they blew up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, murdered many British soldiers, many Jewish people died as well, and those terrorists like the IRA, uh, like uh, FARC, F-A-R-C, and uh, other left-wing organisations, uh, got what they wanted, independence, which they would have got anyway, because the land belongs to the Jews, not the Gentiles, and yet these elderly gentlemen, up in years now, were still torn, ripped to shreds, and I saw one old gentleman, he must be dead now, and he was weeping on camera, and he said, we did terrible things to those British soldiers. Some of those were saved men. My grandfather was in Israel, 1947, 1948, he wasn't saved, but he was in Israel, serving his country. By the grace of God, he was spared. He was in Dunkirk also, and by the grace of God, he was spared. And 1944, 45, 46, he was in Germany, interrogating the Nazis. So you see, sometimes the saved suffer with the lost. And if you wonder why that happens, well, many times we are backslidden. Many times we are no good. But go back to 21.1 again. And the word of the Lord came unto me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, Christ would call himself Son of man 80 times. And he would call himself the Son of God 40-something times. Set thy face toward Jerusalem. Jesus would go up to Jerusalem and on one occasion, the Samaritans didn't want to receive him. And his disciples, John and James Zebedee, got upset about it. Wanted to call fire down from heaven. And the Lord had to rebuke such carnality. And he said, the Son of Man hasn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. And I say that because many times throughout the history of the church, the real church and the apostate church, millions of people have been murdered in the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, many are counterfeit Christians. And drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy, speak against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, Jehovah, speaking to the Jews who are living in Jerusalem, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous, the righteous, the redeemed, the righteous, the saved, and the wicked. Germany 45, Russia 1917, Japan, 1945, etc., etc., etc. Look at verse 4. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh, from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I am the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath. It shall not return any more. Go back to verse 4 again. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, Therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh, from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath. It shall not return any more. Go back to Psalm 7. So if you are saved, living among unsaved people, if you are righteous, living among unrighteous people, if you love the Lord, living among those that hate the Lord, it can be pretty lonely, pretty difficult at times. And yet sometimes it works out pretty uh, amazing 
sometimes it works out pretty well. About 10 years ago or so, I was speaking to a Calvinist in my town who was working at a church, and uh, he was an interesting character to speak to, and he said to me this, he said, where I live, somewhere outside of Liverpool, is a council estate, like social housing, and he said, I'm the only reverend on the estate, remember him telling me that, and he said to me, whenever I go back home, I speak to my neighbours, they know that I am saved, he probably was saved, or there was a tulip, unfortunately, but he said, every time I speak to my neighbours, whenever there's an instance on the estate, they always say to me how happy they are that a reverend lives on their estate. That's nice to hear, but I'm not overly sure that would always be the case. If you had a sign up in your window saying, turn or burn, hellfire lasts forever, uh, there's no hope in the Pope, stuff like that. I think many people would get upset with you. But I knew what he was trying to say. He was righteous, he was saved, I think he probably was, living with unsaved people, unrighteous people, and they were happy that he was living on, the, on their estate. And yet, if a fire was to engulf such an estate, or something was to happen like a flood, or some serious uh, natural event was to take place, they would all suffer. Maybe week before last, the water went out for maybe an hour or two. It affected every house in my street. Every house. It affected me, it affected my neighbours. I went down to the bottom of my street, looked around, I saw a huge water leak, a uh, fountain of water, a leak. It affected everyone. That goes some way to show how this works. We go back to Psalm 711. God judgeth the righteous. That's you and I in the context. Saved Jews. And God is angry with the wicked every day. The unregenerate. Those that are perpetually practicing sin. Those that don't know the Lord. Those that are doing what they want to do. And as a result of that, he is angry. He is judging people. 150,000 people die every 24 hours. That's around 8,000 an hour. But of course, as people are dying, people are being born. It says how God's mercy falls on the just and on the unjust. It also says how he's not willing that any should perish, but how all should come to repentance. Look at 7.12. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Wet his sword, sharpened his sword. This goes back to the wicked, of course, from verse 11. And you've got to read this, read this very carefully. Because at first glance, you think, who's he talking about? The Lord or the wicked? But the aniseed, I would suggest, is on the wicked. If he turn not, he will wet his sword, sharpen his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He's always looking for trouble. He is vicious. He will show no mercy. And if you think back over the years, I think it was the Assyrians who were the first to come up with the awful idea of crucifixion. They had the idea of getting a man or a woman, nailing him or her to a tree, and leaving them on a tree for hours, sometimes days, a slow agonizing death, the Romans came along and really perfected it. And of course, by the time Christ came to die for the sins of the world, they were experts on crucifixion, which I still think to this day is the most painful death imaginable. Your body is, is nailed to a cross. You're basically uh, collapsing as the weight of your body is pulling down. That's the law of gravity, of course. You're being pulled down. Uh, you're also having problems breathing because you're nailed to a cross. And of course, when Christ was being crucified, what was it, April uh, 30 AD, April, May, that's a pretty hot time of the year in Israel. You've got the, the sun hitting your face. You're also naked. It was customary for, uh, customary for the Jews to be crucified, or for the Romans to crucify criminals naked. But of course, no painter wants to paint Christ naked. Absolutely not. I can't think of a worse death than that. I think it was Escobar who used chainsaws on people that were still alive. To slowly take off their heads, that's pretty painful. But it's over within a few seconds. 
no more than a minute or two, or to shoot someone in the stomach, you can bleed out four or five hours at most, but most people die within about an hour or two. But you could be on the cross for many, many hours, and uh, sometimes 24 hours before you died. It's a horrible, agonizing death. And here, verse 12, like I say, if you turn not, he will wet his sword, he hath bent his bow and made it ready. It's speaking about somebody who was unrighteous, somebody who was cruel. I don't care much for computer games. I know that they are very popular. I know most young people are into computer games. And uh, it's been a long time since I've played a computer game. <laughs> many, many years. And the games I've played probably 25 years ago are pretty tame uh, based on today's computer game. But some of the computer games today are pretty graphic. If you are in America, you, you are given an R rating. And in the UK, it's an 18. And you've got young children, 14, 15, 16, playing these computer games. Incredibly realistic. Guys going around with guns, swords, knives, cutting people's hands and feet off. And uh, machine gunning people down. Women, women being cut down. It's incredibly graphic. And you've got Hollywood to partly uh, credit for that. 7.13. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors, like the sword, like the rack, like the gun. The Church of Rome were past masters at torturing people, interrogating people, putting people onto the rack, and uh, stretching you out to see how much pain you could endure. If you go back to Samson, he was tortured by the Philistines. His eyes were removed, and they said to him, Make sport for us, like dance around naked for us. Give us a thrill, uh, do what you can to entertain us. Another good example of the righteous and the unrighteous. Samson was righteous, the Philistines were unrighteous. But Samson was carnal all of his life, sleeping with women, killing people, uh, devouring and uh, defiling his own vows, uh, would drink alcohol, and of course would cut his hair. He would allow his lover to cut his hair, and he violated all of his vows to the Lord, was carnal from start to end. And after a period of time, the Lord withdrew the Holy Spirit from uh, Samson. And of course, once the spirit had been reduced or removed from him, he was reduced in stature. And he woke up one morning. He said to himself, I will escape like as before. And of course, he couldn't escape. He was powerless. And uh, when that happened, they came upon him and grabbed him. If you think about Superman 1, wait, that's Superman 2, which all these movies are counterfeits of the Bible. There's a scene in Superman 2. Uh, Christopher Reeve, of course, early 1980s, when he meets uh, Lois Lane, falls in love with her, and he says to her, basically, I can't be with you and be Superman. Again, it's a picture of uh, Samson and Delilah, basically. And he says to her, what I'm going to do is empty myself of my powers. And he empties himself of his powers, and he becomes just an ordinary guy. And he goes into a restaurant with his lover, his uh, new girlfriend, I suppose, a fight kicks off and one of the diners assaults him and he's badly bashed up. And he goes back to his uh, place in the Arctic. I forget what it's called. Krypton. I think it's Krypton. Yeah. And of course, Krypton is based on heaven. And his father, played by Marlon Brando, is a picture of God the Father. And of course, Christopher Reeve is a picture of God the Son. I mean, it's, it's all copying the Bible, of course. And he speaks to his father and his father says to him, basically, get back into the cube. And I'll restore your powers to you. There's a picture of the second advent as well. Christ comes as the son of uh, Joseph to suffer, in, uh, to suffer for the people. And he comes back as the son of David to rule and reign. And of course Christopher Reeve, Superman type of Jesus Christ, son of God, is restored uh, back to his full glory. But here 
It says from 13, he hath, also, he hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth like he makes his arrows against the persecutors. There's now switch back and forth to what? Mode, the, the unrighteous want to use against the righteous. And of course, Superman is a type of Jesus Christ, a good man, taking on uh, unclean people, unsaved people, wicked people. And they made about four or five of those movies. And of course, in every movie, he gets uh, to beat the bad man and save the girl. And of course, Lois Lane is a type of the church. Superman, type of the son. And his father, like I say, played by Marlon Brando, is a type of God the Father. What would Solomon say? Nothing new under the sun, of course. Uh, look at verse 14. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. He's always planning how to torture his victims. The Dominicans were past masters at doing such. Like I said, they would torture Christians. They would say to Christians, do you denounce uh, faith alone in the blood of Christ alone? Do you submit to the papacy? In fact, it was Anne Askew. I always think of Anne Askew, an English Christian who said, uh, quotes, I've heard that God makes man, but that man makes God I have not heard, close quote. That drove them in, in, insane. They hated the idea of a woman, of all people, saying to these so-called good godly men, <laughs> uh, Pharisees, of course, found over the New Testament, but these papists, just to have a woman say to the papists that God makes man, but that man can make God I have not heard, to hear that from such a woman, drove them insane, and they enjoyed torturing Anne Askew. Or you think about Ridley and Latimer, or poor old uh, William Tyndale, who was sold out, betrayed, tortured for Christ, or Wormbrand, Richard Wormbrand, put in a Soviet prison for many, many years, tortured physically, emotionally, spiritually, had people trying to get into his mind, and probably did, uh, again, it all goes back to the, to the depravity of man. In fact, it says over in Genesis uh, chapter 6 how man's hearts were always uh, evil. I think it's 6 6 for memory. Yes, it says how it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And it says elsewhere how their thoughts were evil continually. Yes, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Pre-Christ, during Christ, post-Christ, the Dominicans, like I say, would torture people in the name of Holy Mother Church. The Jesuits would also uh, interfere with churches and countries. In fact, it was said during World War II that the Jesuits helped a American bomber. Is it the... Uh, what was the name? Uh, Nola Gay. Gay, that's Nola it. Gay. They, they, they guided Nola Gay into... Hiroshima, Hiroshima, or Nagasaki, uh, and as a bomb was being dropped, a church was spared. Yeah. Incredibly. Another mystery from World War II. And these so-called good Christian men, what does the Jesuits mean? Society of Jesus. Directing this bombering, and thousands died. Evil hearts. And God saw the wickedness, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, which matches up with Psalm 7, 14. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. He labours to bring forth falsehood. He allows people to suffer. It could be in the name of religion. It could be in the name of communism. If you think back to Karl Marx, we were talking about him yesterday, Karl Marx. Still to this day, very popular amongst uh, evolutionists, young people. 
But of course, Karl Marx, if you study him very carefully, never worked a day in his life. One of his kids uh, committed suicide. Two others would starve to death. And he thought the state owed him something. And he said to own property was basically theft. And yet Engels, his friend in Manchester, owned most of Manchester. And today, the Pope of Rome, a huge fan of Marx, also regurgitates such nonsense. The Church of Rome, last time I checked, is the wealthiest church on the face of the earth. We call this hypocrisy. And you want to know more about that, read Matthew 23 sometime, when Jesus condemned religious people. Incidentally, Karl Marx wasn't an atheist. He was a member, he was a member of a secret society. Born Jewish, his parents were Jewish, his father was a cantor, and later on his parents converted to Lutherism in Germany. But Karl Marx was not an atheist. He was a Marxist, but he wasn't an atheist. He was into the secret societies, as was uh, Charles Darwin. When these guys attack uh, theism, they're really attacking Christianity. Let's be quite honest about it. You don't find many uh, famous atheists, per se, going after Islam, or Freemasonry, or Hinduism, or Sikhism. They go after Christianity. They are attacking their own civilization. They are against themselves, basically, a house divided. 7.15, he made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. Like warlords, like terrorists or mass murderers. Uh, if you think back to Muhammad, for example, he was a very cruel man and as a cruel uh, warlord, he took great pleasure in persecuting his own uh I won't say followers, but those who once walked with him and stopped walking with him. And he enjoyed uh, killing people. And he would say that whether you see a Jew hiding behind a rock, you were to kill such a person. He would say, don't take somebody of the book, the people of the book, like myself and Patrick, Christians. Don't take people of the book to be your friends. You can't trust the people of the book, he would say, being Christians, uh, because they are liars, basically. And he would say, he would say kill a Jew behind a stone, if you would, uh, behind a rock, if you were to find such hiding. And of course, you ask Muslims about that, they play it down. They say, well, that's not correct. Or they say the translation is incorrect. Or they say, you don't understand Arabic or history, but it's pretty clear. And the best way to know the truth is to profile these people. Take the time to study such people. Study Hitler, study uh, Stalin, study Pol Pot, uh, study Muhammad, study Buddha. Was it Buddha who left his family? Was it Confucius who got drunk every so often? The Dalai Lama, like I said a few moments ago, likes to offer himself as being deity and uh, people fall down and worship him. Or Bagwami, who went to Oregon back in the 1980s and was able to seduce thousands of middle-class Europeans, Australians, Americans. And this guy from India was no more than, I think, 52 when he died. Probably died of syphilis and AIDS was able to uh, indoctrinate an entire generation of people, group sex, uh, do your own thing. And it got so bad in Oregon, I think it was Portland, which is the capital of Oregon, it got so bad that the uh, people in uh, this small town in Oregon, I forget the name of the town, uh, where he basically invaded and took it over, it got so bad that the tiny town in Oregon got onto the state, the capital being Portland, I believe, and uh, the FBI had to get involved to free this town in Oregon from Bagwami. An Indian guru who had a degree in philosophy and psychology was able to hypnotize people. And it's incredible when you watch documentaries about uh, people who followed Bagwami. Lawyers, doctors, accountants, I mean professional white collars, white collar people. Not ordinary working class people with no education. These are educated people. 
and I watched a documentary maybe three or four months ago and I was shocked. Educated people gave up all their money, their lives. In fact, it got so bad that towards the end of Bagwami's time in uh, Oregon, two of his female disciples decided to attempt to murder his own doctor. They thought his own doctor was poisoning him and they thought they'd killed him and they hadn't killed him, but they thought they had killed him. And they fled uh, to, I think it was Germany, and uh, were extradited back to America. They went to prison. Ten years each. And these two women were being interviewed last year. Both unrepentant. I thought, this guy Bagwami, he's been dead for 20 years now. Was kicked out of America, went back to India. Continued to destroy people's lives. Children having sex with children. Adults having sex with children. I mean, there's no God. Do what you want, right? What would uh, Crowley say? Do as thou wilt. And to see these middle class white people some American, some uh, Australian, some European, getting caught up with Bagwami, who was just a chancer, basically, uh, is really quite sad. And I felt sorry for some of the children whose parents went to this commune in Oregon. He made a pit and digged it. You dig your own pit, or you, you make your bed and you lie in it. Again, figures of speech. He made a pit and digged it, but here it could be literal, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. After World War Two, when the Americans arrived in uh, some of the concentration camps, I think it was uh, Patton's boys, they got, uh, they were, was Dachau, was it? They were absolutely distraught at what they saw, and it was pretty rough, of course, even by uh, standards of the war, standards of the world, up until that time. I mean, most soldiers are professional men, family men. They're not all uh, uh, mass murderers. Let's be fair to soldiers, and if you are in the military, I do salute you. Don't feel I'm condemning you. I am not. Uh, I salute you and I pray for you and we thank you for what you do for our country especially. But during World War II, a lot of uh, American and British soldiers were liberating camps all over the place. The Russians dealt with uh, Auschwitz and uh, what's the other place called? Belsen. Belsen. Any other place they liberated? Ravensbrück. 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 Yeah. And the Americans did Dachau and Sachsenhausen and so on and so forth. But I think it was uh, Patton's boys who got to Dachau and they found uh, some of the commandants, commandants, all Roman Catholic, of course, and they got so upset with what they saw, they actually shot yeah. uh, some of the uh, Nazis and put them into pits, no buried trials. them. No trials. No trials, of course, shot on the spot. Yep. But you're thinking of warlords, Muhammad would, would do this, terrorists. Uh, if you go back to uh, France, was it three or four years ago, when uh, a group of terrorists raided a nightclub and... Uh, I forget the place of the nightclub in France, and they spent hours torturing Paris. people. It was Paris, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they did some awful, horrific things, which I won't talk about on on, uh, on uh, Mike this morning, but it's pretty horrific what they did to some of their victims. Went on for hours, mm. and they streamed it, apparently through the internet, and that isn't, hasn't really been spoken about by the media. You wake up one morning, it says a terrorist attack took place last night. Uh, so many people died, and you don't think much more about it, do you? Or when the Manchester attack took place... Two or three years ago, yeah. 30 people dead. You think, well, that's all it was. Not, not, not much more to it. Of course, a lot more to it. People lying, bleeding to death. Some died of fear. Some were being uh, tread, uh, walked over, trodden upon. It was horrific. Blood everywhere. But of course, you don't see that on the media. The media won't let you see that. It was a bloodbath. In the dark. In the dark as well. But the Paris attack was far worse. A handful of terrorists bust, uh, busted in and uh, locked the doors, basically, and spent hours torturing people to death. I mean, it was horrific. Islamic, of course, in the name of Muhammad. Or you go back to the Munich Games, 1972-73. A group of Palestinian terrorists decided to to attack the Jewish, uh, the Israeli team 
in Munich, Germany. The Germans were unable to stop it. They couldn't rescue the Israeli uh, team. It was horrific. And I always think about that one wrestler, yeah. uh, a very well-known wrestler in Israel, whose name escapes me. And they worked over that wrestler, and they did horrible things to him. Which, again, I don't want to talk about this morning because it may upset some of you, but they, mm. they worked that boy over, that man over. They, they talked him to death. It was horrific. Yeah. Photographs were taken, and those uh, terrorists, all on uh, Arafat's orders, thought they got away with it. But, of course, Mossad spent the next five or six years tracking them all down, killed them all, put to death. Mass murderers, it could be uh, famous people, infamous people. It could be someone like uh, Ted Bundy, for example, or it could be someone like uh, Myra Hinley, for example, or uh, what was her, what was Brady. her guy, Brady, yeah, Ian Brady, yeah. uh, or Nelson, Donald Nielsen. Donald Nielsen. These are evil people. Yeah. Uh, I won't go on anymore, but these are really wicked, evil people whose hearts are desperately depraved. Going back to Genesis chapter six, he made a pit and digged it, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own pate. Pate, like from the uh, top of your head to your crown, but here his mischief shall return upon his own head. You think about the Council of Trent, they would say, if any man say he is saved by faith in Christ alone, let him be anathema. Such words are going to come back onto the heads of such people. If you are a Roman Catholic, and you hold to the Council of Trent's decision, which of course you must do if you are a Roman Catholic, if you are a bishop, or, a bishop or a cardinal in the Church of Rome, you up, you have to uphold uh, the Council of Trent. You are now cursing yourself, and one day your own mischief will come. Well, your mischief will come back in your own head, and your violent dealing shall come down upon your own pate. Again, like the crown, the top of your head, the crown area, basically. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. Keep your hand there. Go to Genesis chapter 3 when men get together and uh, come up with these uh, devilish schemes to anathematize ex-catholics like myself and patrick we believe we're saved by faith in christ alone uh what they don't realize is that they are cursing themselves they're anathematizing themselves or these nazis during world war ii they followed their leaders right up until the death and they would say at nuremberg we were only following orders and most were hung although many did escape unfortunately many many went to south america and elsewhere and got away with it for a long period of time uh, but of course Ted Bundy was put to death uh, Myra Hinley died of, of cancer Brady died I think the year before last yeah. Muhammad died wasn't particularly old but when Muhammad died his followers thought he would be resurrected and it was decided not to bury him and of course he wasn't resurrected and they had to bury him of course his mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own pate Genesis chapter 3 so keep the word head in mind because the word pate and head are used interchangeably. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Satan of course, Because thou hast done this, lied to Adam and Eve, but especially Eve, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Again, figure of speech, but it could partly be literal, because now the devil is referred to as a creeping being. And I will put enmity, enemy, enmity, same word, a difference, but a, host a hostile difference. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between you and Eve. But of course from Eve comes Mary, and via Mary comes Israel. Eve means the mother of all living. So you've got Eve, you've got Mary, you've got Israel. Put enmity between thee and the seed, 
and between thy seed and her seed. Of course, a serpent doesn't have a literal seed, and if he did have a literal seed as a serpent or as a snake, which he probably would do, that wouldn't be able to affect the woman. And yet some people say that Satan was able to impregnate Eve. I don't believe that. But that was held by the Church of Rome for many a year. And I know some dispensationalists hold to that. I don't. The woman has no seed. The man has the seed, not the woman. So you know it's spiritual. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It being Jesus, and thou being Satan. So keep that in mind. Go to John 13. So Psalm 7, like verses 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, deal with unrighteous people in general, wicked people in general, but of course, the ultimate wicked person is that wicked one, the Antichrist, of course. And in John 13, one of the most infamous types of the Antichrist is, uh, of course, Judas Iscariot. He's called a devil from uh, John 6, and we will profile him a lot. Uh, more thoroughly when we get to Psalm, I think it's 41, from memory. But John 13, John 13, Scripture with Scripture, tells us the following. Uh, John 13, John 13, like verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen for service, not salvation, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that... Eateth bread with me, hath lifted up his heel against me. His heel against me. And I put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me, hath lifted up his heel against me. Go to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Uh, Revelation 13. Revelation 13, Revelation 13, look at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. So it could be that you will see a counterfeit crucifixion, resurrection, uh, during the tribulation that is held by many dispensationalists, and I partly concur with that. But also the term heads, or one of his heads, denotes a kingdom. A power base. And this morning I thought about this. I thought this morning that China. In fact only five countries really rule the world. And the five countries. I thought about China for example. China if she wanted to could uh, take over Africa. The US could take over Europe. France could take over the South Atlantic. The UK could take over the Far East. Or vice versa. France and UK. Similar military presence. Russia could take over Central America and South America. If she wanted to. And those five, country, uh, five countries control the entire world. They are referred to as the permanent five of the United Nations. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. Could be physical like I say. But more likely to be spiritual. Like one of his kingdoms was wounded to death. Like the Roman Empire will return. And his deadly wound was healed. Like revived. And all the world wandered after the beast. If you go back to 1991, 1992... Or thereabouts, make it 1990, 1991, when Saddam Hussein went into Q8 and he was told to get out, and uh, that was a setup, of course. The Americans set him up and uh, he pulled out of Q8. The Americans drove him out, basically. They killed many of his men, uh, they destroyed many of his tanks. Of course, Saddam was the aggressor, but he was backed by the CIA and other American leaders, uh, past and present. But he said to himself, This Saddam, he said, Well, I'm going to now rebuild Iraq. 
I will, re I will rebuild Babylon, and for a period of time, up until his death in what, 2004 was it? Mm. Or late 2003, people are saying that he could be, or his country could be, uh, Babylon the Great. Yeah. Because they thought that Babylon would be uh, rebuilt. In fact, I seem to remember the American Embassy in uh, Babylon, Babylon, in Iraq, uh, is the biggest in the world. It employs over 5,000 personnel. And it was built, I think, just after the Second Gulf War. Of course, Baghdad is the capital of Iraq, but they built a huge complex, the Americans, that is, built a huge complex in Babylon. But, of course, Revelation 13.3 uh, speaks about a kingdom uh, being revived, like the Roman Empire, quite likely. And if it's the Roman Empire, then, of course, it's Rome. Christ came the first time. Papal Rome were calling the shots. He comes back the second time. And uh, so he comes the first time. It's first time he comes. It's it's uh, pagan Rome, and the second time it's papal Rome. Rome, and they're still calling the shots. I'll give you one more, and uh, we will have to close. We are almost out of time. Uh, go to Romans sixteen, please. Romans uh, sixteen. So Christ has a seed, being the church, if you will. Uh, Satan has a seed, being the anti-church, if you will. Uh, Satan was partly victorial uh, over Christ on the cross. But he hasn't been able to uh, completely destroy what Christ did. Of course, Christ partly wounded, uh, bruised temporarily uh, the head of the serpent. But at the second advent, the church will permanently crush uh, Satan. Romans 16, uh, Romans 16, look at verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So we say this, we say the church as of right now, has temporarily uh, trodden under Satan, or trodden underfoot, has basically walked over Satan uh, temporarily, but it says how one day uh, the church will permanently crush Satan. Uh, Satan's under our feet temporarily, but we say this, we say the, we say he, he gets under her feet. Again, figure of speech. He gets under her feet, or we say uh, such is a nuisance, gets in the way, in fact, I remember years ago working with a chap. He'd been at my place of employment for a long, long time. He took retirement. And uh, one of my other colleagues said to me, he's been at home for six months now. So he's getting under the feet of his wife. <laughs> getting under the feet of his wife. I thought, yep, that makes perfect sense. But one day it says how the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Shortly. Hasn't happened yet. Temporarily at the cross, but permanently at the second advent. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Again, figures of speech. And you know that when the word of God speaks about such things, it's not literal. Although it's perhaps possible that Satan will be forced to bend the knee. And uh, he will say Jesus Christ is Lord. And Christ put his foot on Satan's head. There is a statue, I think it's in uh, Windsor Castle or somewhere, of Michael the Archangel uh, putting his foot on the neck of Satan. If you go back to the Old Testament, it was uh, Samuel who would uh, round up enemies of the Lord, who Saul failed to deal with. And I think Joshua would do this as well, put their feet on the necks of Israel's enemies to show that Jehovah was top dog. Uh, one more and I will close. Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk 3, uh, verse 13. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest, the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. 
sealer or sailor. You've got the, uh, the Antichrist being uh, destroyed and his neck has been, has been uh, destroyed. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, the Jews, even for salvation with thine anointed. Christ is the anointed, of course. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked. Satan is called the wicked one. The Antichrist is the son of Satan. By discovering the foundation unto the neck. Sealer or sailor. So I'll come back next Sunday and further elaborate on these verses. We are way over time for this morning. But you see how these verses all fit together. And like I said a few moments ago, or maybe 50 minutes ago actually, that at first read, the book of Psalms is wonderful for devotion, devotional time. But the more you read it, the more you study it, the more you cross-reference it, the more it comes alive to you. And it really will blow you apart and blow you away. But again, Satan under your feet. We say he gets under her feet. He's a nuisance at home. He gets in the way. Again, he's not literally under his wife's feet. He's not literally in the way, but he is a nuisance. Again, these are figures of speech, and the Jews, the Hebrews, were great at using figures of speech. Pluck your eye out, cut your hand off, and do this and do that. Not literally, of course, but it means to take care of the sin problem. Deal with yourself, and if you do that, the Lord will keep in the straight and narrow. Another Bible term, straight and narrow. But we will come back next week and finish off these remaining verses. Please go back to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And look at verse 20 again, please. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So last week we looked at Romans chapter 16. As we came to the end of a look at Genesis 3, John 13, Revelation chapter 13. Trying to put all these verses together to explain how the head and the heel are used interchangeably concerning the saviour and the serpents. And as of right now, the serpent is still very busy going around, destroying people's lives, getting Christians to fight with each other. Uh, but more importantly, getting Christians to not do anything to basically put their feet up. But one day, Satan will be under our feet, meaning he will be totally destroyed. And Revelation speaks about a thousand year period where he will be put into the lake of fire. And after 1000 years, he will be resurrected to roam the earth, to gather most of the world to have one final attempt to overthrow Almighty God. And of course that should be proof to anyone that the doctrine, the false doctrine, the heretical doctrine of annihilation is just that heresy. You don't cease to exist and once you go into hell you are there for all of eternity. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Go back to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. So Romans 16 is the End of Satan's time on the earth. And you may ask, why does the Lord allow him to live, breathe, exist? He has only brought misery to mankind. Well, of course, if you are saved, he is used to bring you closer to the Lord. And if you are lost, he is used to further damn you, to further destroy you. The Lord has a purpose for everyone and everything. Uh, Psalm 7 needs to be looked at again, uh, like verses 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. 7, 11. God judgeth the righteous. God judges, judges the righteous. That's you and I. If you are redeemed, if we are redeemed, if we are born again, if we are saved, we are the redeemed. God judgeth the righteous every day. And God is angry with the wicked every day. So one more time. God judgeth the righteous. That's you and I. If we are saved, we are judged on a daily basis. We are judged to be further uh, useful to the Lord, to be called uh, into service, to be drawn closer to him. And God is angry, furious, with the wicked 
the unregenerate, every day. It's a pretty clear verse, isn't it? Two groups of people, the saved and the unsaved, the redeemed and the reprobates, the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. But one more time, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword, he hath bent his bow and made it ready. Verse 12 deals with the wicked first and foremost. If he turn not, light doesn't turn to the Lord. And it says here, he will wet his sword. He will sharpen his sword. Now this could be in reference to the Lord or in reference to the wicked. I have to read this very carefully over the last few weeks to see how we are to exegete it. But it starts off by if he turn not. And I would say the aniseed there is in reference to the wicked. He will wet his sword. Now that could be in reference to the Lord. Sharpening his sword to deal with the wicked. And I'll take you to uh, Joshua 8 shortly to further expound on my hypothesis. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. So you've got two views for verse 12. It could be in reference to the wicked. If he doesn't turn, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready, like he has made his bed and he will fall, he will fall into his bed. Or as they say, you made your bed, now lie in it. Or it could be in reference to the wicked and the Lord, both appearing in the same verse. And that's how you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. 13. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. Could be in reference to the wicked or in reference to the Lord. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. More likely to be in reference to the Lord. He chooses the means and ways in which he will deal with ungodly people. How he will deal and dish out payment to the wicked. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth. He makes. He chooses his arrows against the persecutors. Like last week we discussed the sword, the rack or the gun. Or used throughout the history of mankind to really impact and cause pain to, on the one hand, those that do wrong, and on the other hand, those that do right. If you are living for the Lord, you may suffer for the Lord. The Apostle Paul was whipped almost 200 times throughout his lifetime for doing right. Job was beaten black and blue for doing right. Uh, Joseph went into slavery and uh, almost perished for doing right. Of course, turn it around later on, uh, Joseph is still saved, but he starts to do wrong. Or Job uh, does right, but later on becomes self-righteous. Or the Apostle Paul uh, does right, but later on starts to go against the Holy Ghost. He was told not to go up to Jerusalem. And that was the Lord's commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And he went against the Lord's commandments. And as a result of that, he lost two years of his life. But go back to verse 11 again. Let's keep drilling into this. God judgeth, God judgeth the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not concerning the wicked, he will wet his sword concerning God. He hath bent his bow concerning the wicked. And made it ready concerning God. See, there's two things going on in just one particular verse. And sometimes the Lord works very closely uh, with the devil. And you can't always tell what is going on. You may spend all of your time praying for someone or something. And not really know what to do. You may wake up feeling very bruised. Uneasy about something. You may say to yourself, this, isn't, this doesn't seem to be the will of the Lord. And yet it was. It is the will of the Lord. You might wake up and say, well, I need to do this today. I need to witness to such and such a person today. Or I need to take the gospel to such and such a person today. Or I need to make amends with such and such a person today. And you feel really conflicted, really uneasy about it. You feel a form of, a form of anxiety just washing over you. And you think, what's going on here? Should I do this or should I not do this? Many times over the years, we've arranged an outreach or two. Sometimes at the last minute, not, not always sure if it was the right thing to do. And it's turned out to be a great thing. Other times we decide not to do something when perhaps we should have done something. You won't always know whether the Lord wants you to do something or not. You may feel the devil is always working you over, but the reality is that he can't even breathe on you. He can't even look at you if the Lord doesn't allow him to do so. 13. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. Could be the wicked, back in verse 11, or it could be the Lord, back in verse 11. 
He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. So I would suggest that's in reference to the Lord. Avenging those that live for him. He would turn Job's captivity. He would uh, release Joseph from his captivity. And the Apostle Paul would be victorious. He would finish the race that was set before him. So many times a wrong is put right. And the Lord is working even where a wrong is uh, being presented to everyone. And that's why Romans 8.28 is always so beautiful. Because sometimes you don't know what's going on. Sometimes you are just baffled by what is going on. You can't work it out. And if you find yourself in such a situation, just allow Romans 8.28 to work in the background. Behold, verse 14. He travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. Certainly in reference to the wicked there. He made a pit, and digged it, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. The wicked again. His mischief shall turn upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate, like the crown of his head. And no doubt in reference to the wicked once again. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. And will sing praise the name of the Lord Most High. And this goes back one more time to the Lord's righteousness concerning or the Lord's righteousness versus man's righteousness. Ours is in reference to our state, whereas the Lord is in reference to our standing, standing and state. And you may say, what is the difference? There is a huge difference. Just because you are saved doesn't mean you are sinless. And the moment you meet somebody who says they are sinless, they have misunderstood the word of God. But here, the word uh, from verse uh, 16 is very interesting to me. Mischief, own head, uh, concerning his own pate. And keep your hand there. Go to First Corinthians. Let's continue to build on this term head. The head of Christ, the heel of the serpent. Found way back in Genesis chapter 3. And in First Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul builds on this. Like verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. So there is a pecking order. And it's a very clear one. How Christ is over the man, in reference to the saved man, obviously. And over Christ is God, in reference to the father. And over the woman, if she is married, will be the man, like her husband, obviously. If she's an unmarried woman, then an elder will be over her, a brother in the Lord will be over her. If you come across a woman, a single woman, who has a ministry, or has the uh, desire to have a ministry, or an unmarried woman, who... Uh, is drifting basically doing her own thing doesn't have anybody over her that's a worrying thing to see and I can think of several female preachers who do their own thing travel the world some of them and they're like rudderless they have nobody over them but here the reference is to uh, the woman whose head is the man and the man whose head is Christ one more time but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God so like I said, there was a pecking order. Christ came to uh, give his life. He came to serve, not to be served. And as of right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And of course, his Father is over him. It's still a picture of submission. And you go to uh, Colossians chapter 1. We find the cross-reference to this. Woman who is married, her husband is over her. That doesn't mean he is... Uh, to be a dictator obviously there are checks and balances in place for the man over the woman and the woman over the child of course or the woman over the children uh, of course if you have an unsaved spouse Peter speaks about that and he says how the woman is to be chaste uh, that her conversation cannot be condemned and if you are a saved woman with an unsaved husband it's pretty difficult for you you are still to submit to him or if you are a saved man with an unsaved Woman and unsaved wife, it's somewhat different. You are still the head of your 
head of your marriage, of course, but you have to walk a fine line to win your wife to the Lord, of course. Colossians 1, Colossians 1, look at verse uh, 17. And he, Christ, is before all things, before Abraham was, I am, and by him all things consist, without exception, and every non-Christian group on the face of the earth despises such a statement. They want Christ to fit into every other religious system. They want Christ to be on par with Muhammad, or Confucius, or some of the popes, or Mary, the so-called Queen of Heaven. The idea of having uh, Christ put on a different uh, setting, or for Christ not to be elevated up to where he belongs, causes a lot of resentment to self-righteous people. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body. Christ is the head of the body of the church. Not the Pope, not your favourite denomination or your favourite preacher. He is the head of the body, the church, and you'll see that church and body are used interchangeably. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. Like he will never die again. And if you are Jehovah's Witness, you read this and say that Christ was the first creation of God. Which of course is a heresy. He, he is, he is uh, eternal of course. But here, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. First to come up uh, and never die again, of course. Lazarus came up, but would go on to later die. Uh, the Telethakumi girl would come up, but later go on to die. The boy from Nain would come up, but later go on to die. And uh, Dorcas and uh, Tabitha would later come up, and later go on to die. Moses would die again. Elijah would, of course, die in the tribulation, whereas Enoch will never die. Enoch is a picture of the church age saint, who is removed never to die again. That in all things... He might have the preeminence, like be the most important person to ever live, the greatest uh, in the entire solar system. The word of God says that you are to bow the knee to Jesus, you are to confess him as Lord. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things, he might have the preeminence, the importance. Head of the body, go back to Genesis chapter 3. He is the head, he is the boss, he is the corporate head, or... Christ is the federal head over mankind and the animal world. Genesis chapter 3, 14 again. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, you and Eve, you and Israel especially, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, it being Jesus, and thou, being the devil, shall bruise his heel. So head and heel are used quite clearly here to denote a clash of kingdoms, a clash of races. Of course, from Christ came the messianic line, and uh, from the serpent came the anti-messianic line. Or from the line of uh, Christ came the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously, and from the line of the serpent came the antichrist. Two groups of people. But one more time, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So it concerning Christ, as I say, and uh, thou concerning Satan. Go back to Psalms, Psalm 7, 16 again. His mischief shall turn upon his own head. Antichrist, his own head. Antichrist, the serpent, or those in his line, of course, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate crown of his head but you say how does it all work how does the lord work when it comes to uh, dealing with ungodly people go to joshua chapter 8 joshua chapter 8 and look at verse 24 and it came to pass when israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of a or i in the field in the wilderness wherein they chased them 
and when they were all fallen on the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned unto Ai, and smote it with the edge of the sword. And so it was that all fell that day, both of men and women, were twelve thousand, even all the men of Ai. For Israel, excuse me, for Joshua drew not his hand back, wherewith he stretched out the spear, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took for a prey unto themselves, according unto the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. Twelve thousand wiped out, verse 25. Twelve thousand. All the nations are as a drop in the bucket to the Lord. And here Israel is really in the driving seat, 1400 BC. And Israel, acting as the Lord's policeman, if you will, the Lord's army, if you will, are dealing with the inhabitants of Ai. Uh, look at verse 27. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took for a prey unto themselves, according unto the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. Joshua meaning Jesus. Jesus meaning Joshua. And of course here Joshua, type of Jesus, the second advent, is wiping out people left, right and centre. Which you find over in the book of Revelation. He comes back on a horse. We come back with him on horses. He pulls out a sword. Could be a literal sword, but also uh, the word of God would be a good cross-reference for that. Hebrews says the, the, the word of the Lord is sharp and powerful and is able to uh, cut the thoughts and uh, thoughts and intents of the minds. And Joshua burned A, excuse me, Joshua burned A and made it a heap forever, even a desolation unto this day. And the king of A, he hanged on a tree until eventide. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city, and raised thereon a great heap of stones that remaineth unto this day. So he killed the king of Ai, and of course Samuel, along with Saul, but especially Samuel and Joshua, and David I think on one occasion as well, would kill enemies of Israel, put their feet onto the neck of the enemies of the Lord, going back to bruising his heel, bruising his head, and again head picturing not only a physical head, but a uh, picture of a kingdom, obviously, and the Lord will use his own people to put down his enemies, Many times that was done physically, other times it was done uh, in a more subtle way. But here the king of A was hanged on a tree until eventide, end of the day. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree. They weren't allowed to leave it up indefinitely uh, for more than a period of time. The Jews had more respect for the dead than the Gentiles did for the Jews. And you want to really understand that to study the Islamic uh, wars with Israel going back to 1948. Any of the conflicts since 1948, just study them sometime. I go back to 1916, 1917, when a group of Mohammedans uh, wiped out hundreds of Jews worshipping in Israel. And of course, at the time, the British were there under General Allenby, and it was a difficult time for the British to govern Israel. And it was, there was a reference to the man on the hill. And this man on the hill was a warlord, an Islamic warlord. And his job was to kill as many Jews as was humanly possible. And many years went by, many wars and battles took place. Always the Mohammedans aggressive towards the Jews. And you read about that back in Nehemiah and Ezra. There's a fight going on, a supernatural battle between the Mohammedans and the Jews. But the Jews were told to show more respect for the dead. And that's why Joshua cuts down the king of Ai around evening time, as soon as the sun was down. And Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass, his body, down from the tree. Tree picturing a cursed death. Christ died a cursed death for us. To die in a tree, not just a physical tree, but it would denote, it's a Jewish idiom of course, it would denote a cursed death. Christ was nailed to the cross, not a literal tree. But again it pictures a cursed death. 
and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city, and raised thereon a great heap of stones, buried him with stones, that remaineth unto this day. Go back to Psalm 7, please. Psalm 7. So Joshua shows you how the Lord deals with those that are into mischief, uh, those that are into uh, wickedness. And of course Joshua was far from perfect, but he was a better man than most people living today. He dealt with the king of A without any worry whatsoever. Uh, like 7.11, how God judgeth the righteous. He dealt with Moses, he dealt with Aaron, he dealt with Miriam, three of the greats back in the book of Exodus. All died prematurely. They were righteous, but they were judged and they were killed prematurely, especially Moses and Aaron. And God is angry with the wicked every day, like the king of A. If he turn not the wicked, he will wet his sword. He had bent his bow and made it ready. Again, if the king of A hadn't turned back, uh, or if he, if, he, if he refused to turn back, the Lord would wet his sword, sharpen it, and also wet, like blood-stained, if you will, bent his bow and made it ready. He's ready to deal with the wicked. And he hath also prepared for him the instruments of death, death, death. Concerning the Lord, of course, he ordaineth his, he, he ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. A and Co were all wiped out. Later on, Samuel would come along and say to Saul, why haven't you dealt with the enemies of the Lord? You were told to wipe them all out, including the livestock. In fact, from uh, Joshua 8, it says he didn't destroy the livestock. He kept the livestock. But later on in the book of Joshua, he would kill even the livestock. Mm. Nothing would be left to breathe. It was a complete, a complete wipeout. A picture of hell, of course. Many roads in, but none out. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity. He labours, he suffers with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. Every wicked pagan in the Old Testament would be a good candidate for this verse. He made a pit, and digged it. And has fallen to the ditch which he made. Pretty awful. You think you are victorious. And for a period of time you are in the driving seat. You've got the world at your feet. It could be Napoleon. It could be Charlemagne. It could be Adolf Hitler. It could be Joseph Stalin. Or look at the Middle East today. Look at the leaders of Saudi Arabia. Or Kuwait. Or Bahrain. Or the UAE. Or Iran especially. In Iran you can't live or breathe or say or do anything without the state. Uh, checking you out. Wanting to know what you are doing. But one day these regimes will be completely toppled. North Korea, there's now talk that the sister-in-waiting has been eliminated by the so-called beloved leader because she dared to challenge him when he was absent for a period of time earlier this year. And she hasn't been seen for a period of time. But one day such countries, such regimes will fall into their own pits which they have digged and they will be completely wiped out. His mischief shall turn upon his own head. Going back to the earlier verses... And his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate, top of his head. All this is in reversal to the Messiah, of course. In fact, just keep your hand there and go back to Genesis very briefly. Because what is right in the Old Testament is later corrupted further on. It shall bruise thy head. So here Christ will bruise the head of the serpents. And thou, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. That's what the Lord, being the Father, wanted to take place. And that's what will take place. But of course it gets turned around. It gets corrupted. And that's what Psalm 7, uh, 15 and 16 is speaking about. But verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. My standing in Christ is based on what he did for me, not on what I do for him. My state may be all very well, but even my state, if it's any good, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but even if it is any good, it's still down to the Lord. Everything we have goes back to him. He has everything, we have nothing. Or by his goodness and grace, we have what we desperately need. Praise the Lord according to his righteousness. And we sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Lord Most High, 
the Most High God. You find that a few times in the Gospels. When devil-possessed people met the Lord Jesus Christ, they would say, Who are you? Or we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God, the One of the Most High, the the Son of the Most High. The term Most High means the highest God, basically. Every Gentile in Genesis, every pagan throughout the history of the world, will have different levels, different gods that they look up to. The Hindus have thousands of gods, in fact, millions of gods. But they have one top god. Hinduism, Sikhism, I think is similar. They have many gods at a lower level, but they have one superior god. Or the Native Americans, they would have uh, different gods, but one superior god. I think the great white god, or the great white master, the great white spirit. spirit. It was the great white spirits. And the great white spirits, I think that's what he was called, uh, was their top god, basically. So when it says, Lord, Most High, it means just that. All of the pagan gods, and gods within gods, lords are lords within lords, are all or nothing, all counted as nothing. It's the name of the Lord, Most High. So 17 verses from the 7th Psalm, not an easy psalm to read through and try and work out. And like I said a while ago, sometimes within one verse you've got two groups of people appearing. The wicked, a whole line of wicked people, and the righteous a single line of righteous people. Joshua was righteous, but the king of A was unrighteous. And like I just said a few moments ago, the Lord uh, will appear to put down the wicked, but Christ is over the church, the man is over the woman, and the father is over Christ. A pecking order. It still makes sense to this day. A child is born, the child is in submission to its parents, the child goes to school, is in submission to the teachers, the child grows up, goes to college perhaps, or university, is in submission to their teachers and lecturers, grows up, uh, works for a company, is in submission to the employer, and is also in submission to the state. Gets married, goes to the registry office perhaps, has to go through that registry system to get a marriage license, or if they don't want to do that, they go to the church, get married in a church, or fail in that. Uh, they come together, they have their vows it could be a religious ceremony, no state involved. They still come together in the presence of other people. And no, no doubt when they do that, the brother gets up, the leader, the pastor, the elder, and marries the couple. There's always been a pecking order. But if you chip away at the pecking order, which we are seeing, certainly this year, uh, everything else starts to fall apart. So we'll close it there and pick it up next week from Psalm 8. The correct pronunciation of the word AI is I, not A, but I. So Joshua killed the king of Ai, and Ai was the nation singled out in the book of Joshua to demonstrate the Lord's justice and holiness.